Welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Robbie Straczynski. Thank you so much for joining us on episode number 102 of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. Today's guest graduated from the University of Georgia, his home state, with a degree in psychology and has one of poker's greatest nicknames, the Gunslinger. Love that nickname. To date, he has won three WSOP bracelets all in mixed games, with his most notable one being the 2009 50K horse event. Prior to becoming a poker player for a living, where he's won over $4.3 million in live tournaments over his career, this man was a professional bowler. So we're going to hear all about that and much more as we get to know him a little better. David Buck, welcome (laughs) to the Cards Chat Podcast. Thank you. It's uh, really nice to be on today. Uh, that's good. It's good to see you. I got to meet you a couple weeks ago uh, in Las Vegas, and I understand you're still there. You've been there for a while. I'm still here. Uh, this is a, by far the longest I've spent in Las Vegas. I, I did own a, a condo out here at one time, but uh, I didn't get to play poker for two years with the pandemic. I mean, I played a little online, but you know that we all know that's nowhere the same. Right. And so uh, I really appreciate the chance to get play mixed game every day. We play at Resorts World 8160 six days a week. I mm. probably play five of those. And it's been really nice to sit down and play, although I do miss my family quite a bit. That's And you said the longest you've been. So how long have you been there? Uh, since just before the World Series. So since uh, the end of May. That is a very long time. My goodness. I'm going home in two weeks for Halloween. I promised my son that. And uh, you know, I, I miss my wife and son anyway. So uh, that's good. How, how old I got about two more weeks here. Uh, he's seven. Oh, wow. That That is tough to be away from home for a long time. I, I'm sure you do a lot of like FaceTime and, and Zoom calls and stuff. We do. We, but, you know, it's not the same, but we do. Yeah, that's good. Very important. All right. Well, it's good. Um, well, let's start, David, with what you're perhaps best known for uh, in the poker world. Uh, your first WSOP bracelet, uh, you know, kind of an amazing bracelet to win. Uh, it came in 2009. Uh, it was a record breaking final table. It lasted 20 hours almost 500 hands. So my question is, how can you still play your A game, you know, for that long? Uh, and second part is also when it did finally end, when, you know, the, the, there'll be time enough for counting, when the dealing was done, do you remember what sort of emotions, you know, kind of filled you uh, when you did win your first bracelet? Oh, for sure. All, all that is still very vivid to me. Uh, I, uh, First of all, I played a lot of very long home game sessions. Uh, some of my, uh, I have some people that take little pieces of me in the tournament back home, and they'll remember this because we used to play 40, 50 hour sessions. Hours. You know, kind of routinely. Yeah. Wow. Um, uh, we'd start a Friday night game and we'd finish like Sunday morning when, you know, one of the players had to go to church or <laughs> meet his family <laughs> or something. You know? Um, wow. you know, and, and, and we played a lot of those sessions. So I got very used to that. My longest one ever was 64 hours, which that I couldn't do anymore. That, that was a bit much, but, um, how do you go without used to play, sleep for that long? I uh, just do. You just kind of wow. tough through it. Some of the old, some of the older guys were medicated. Um, <laughs> I do in fact myself, uh, I have attention deficit disorder, so I take Ritalin, uh, which is a stimulant. So that uh, that would keep me awake a little bit right. through the session, but but more just uh, you know just building your body up to it. I've always had a natural, I would say, probably thirty to forty hour clock. Wow. Just naturally, I'm, 
I can kind of stay up like 25, 26 hours and then sleep 12. And that's kind of how I function normally. Uh-huh. It doesn't function very well in the world or with my son's school or anything like that, but uh-huh. uh, it, it can be pretty good for poker at times. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you, so you're saying that, um, well, I mean, I guess maybe that answers that first question as well. Of like, how can you stay on your A game for that long? Yeah, I did that. I also, um, and, and a shout out to uh, my friend, Matt, who's a uh, masseuse. He was a masseuse in Las Vegas. He's moved to uh, Montana, I believe. Now he's working at a resort. Uh, he stayed on site, you know, working way after hours just to give me massages on the breaks. Wow. So like I, I knew I, you couldn't do it with the cameras and everything. So I knew to, I'd need a little, you know, pick me up on the, on the break. So he actually stayed and we would do like a 10 minute massage on the breaks. Nice. over that whole night until we finished it, you know, eight or 10 in the morning, whatever it was. Well, that definitely helps. So, so when you did finish, you know, so you said you remember it very vividly. Uh, tell us about those feelings. It, uh, one thing interesting, John Hansen remarked to me a couple years later, that was the man I played heads up against. Um, how, how was I able to, to stay with it so long? Cause I think mm-hmm. he drugged out a little bit. He was a very good player. And uh, first of all, I was very, focused and I really wanted it bad because I'd, I'd had two previous runner-up finishes and you don't get that many bites at the apple at the world series. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I really wanted, I wanted to play my best. Of course, this is the tournament that a mixed game player wants to win more than anything. Oh yeah. Um, Chip so I, I think motivation, it's a big deal. Yeah, I think motivation had a lot to do with things also. Mm-hmm. Oh, very cool. Um, well, one of the other players, uh, very famous uh, Poker Hall of Famer, who was uh, sitting at the final table with you there, uh, was the elusive Huck Seed. Uh, we likely won't ever get to have Huck Seed on this show. So maybe you happen to have a Huck Seed story either from the final table or a different time where you may have uh, interacted with him. Those stories are always Huck, good. Huck is a really cool guy. I actually know him fairly well because he, he's played mixed games with us. You know, he's far from a regular, but he, he drops in. I think he's not playing as much as he used to, but you mm-hmm. can still occasionally see him. He'll, he'll whip in for a couple hours and play. And Huck is always somebody I have looked up to. I remember seeing him at Foxwoods oh, wow. in, wow, this was 1997. Mm-hmm. And I was watching No Limit. I barely knew how to play No Limit at the time. I was watching the main event. And he was just like a man amongst boys. And you could tell the whole rest of the table was just totally spooked by him. Because he was just that much better. He was applying concepts that are common today from good players. And he had created those concepts himself in, in the mid-90s. And that's why he was so dominant. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And, you know, that's no limit hold'em and those sort of concepts. Were they applicable, you know, mixed games as well? Like, you know, how what, what was it like facing him at that final he's, day? He's by, he's by far the best Raz player I've ever played with. I, I've I went deep in a Raz tournament. I think I wound up finishing like eighth. Um, no, no, I finished second in that one. But I, I was deep in the tournament, the final few tables with him. And I was just looking to observe every single little thing he did just to, to learn. Mm-hmm. And he did some really interesting limping strategies that you don't see people do very often. And again, he had people just totally off balance. And I would say that's always been the strength of his game, is being able to keep people off balance but not give up EV in doing so. Not not just make a bad play, but make a different play that was still just as much or more effective. Is that typical that you? I mean, obviously Huck is a you know a unique type of person to you know want to learn from. But is that typical for you that you're kind of like taking notes and trying to learn from other players, or is that just you know in unique particular situations? 
I would say more with Huck than anybody else, but but yes, you can you can learn something. You can learn something from a bad player. Uh, yeah. Sometimes a bad player will do something that gives other people trouble. You know, a bad player will do something that gives me trouble, and I'll and I'll say to myself, you know, if, if I'm in the right mode, if I'm in a bad mood and losing or whatever, I might just be frustrated that he's beating me. But if I'm doing the right thing, uh, I should say, well, what is it that's giving me trouble, and how can I put that into my game? Right. And so, so, you know, especially because you're focused on mixed games, it's not necessarily the typical getting in the lab that all the no limit Hold'em players do. So what does study mean for, for a mixed game player? Is it mostly at the table, away from the table? How do you sort of go through hands? Do you talk to other players? You know, what's involved? Uh, you talk to other players. Uh, I haven't done that as much as some people because I kind of like to keep some of the secrets to myself <laughs> since, since there, are, there is so little out there. Um, I'll go back and read some of the limited material that there is on mixed games. There is some decent stuff out there, uh, especially if I haven't played for a while, just to kind of refresh things. Um, I will take uh, I'll take notes during a tournament. Anybody that's kind of seen me at the at the World Series, they'll you know they'll see me jotting away on a phone or a tablet or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's taking notes, um, which I use to uh, to write uh, recaps for the people that take pieces of me. But it also can be very effective to go back and reflect on. Like when I play the same event the next year, I'll go back and I'll look at my notes from a successful run in that same tournament uh, just to kind of remind myself of some of the things that that I did well or didn't do well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I want to harp on actually something said, uh, writing recaps specifically for the people who took pieces of you. So you know, not to get into any sort of specifics, but... Clearly, that's important to you. And if someone invests in you, they, you know, you feel like you owe them a, a good and proper report. Can you tell us uh, about that a little bit? Well, I've been doing that a long time now, since uh, 2005, uh, when I started playing tournaments regularly. Um, I started just writing little email recaps of my day. Um, over the time, I've developed a nice little shorthand so I can take these notes. And, and my sponsors have remarked how much they enjoy it. Uh, they kind of feel part of the experience. So it has a lot of benefits. First of all, some of my sponsors aren't in it because they're they want to make money. Uh, they don't want to invest in a in a bad horse, but right. they they enjoy the sweat of it. So that that lets them feel like part of the action. Uh, for myself, it makes me responsible for what I do. Um, and during these recaps, I try and really be honest. If I screw up, I'll put it in there uh, and try and learn from it. And then if I if I make a really good play, well, I can learn from that. I've made a note of it, uh, and I can reflect on that and use it. And then I also have a long term uh, picture of writing a book. Oh, cool! I'm not I'm I'm not ready to do that yet because again, I don't want to give away the the store while I'm still playing. Sure. But uh, as I get a little older, maybe in my mid 60s or something like that, um, I have a lot of material that I could put into a book that uh, would probably make a really good book. Awesome. Well, I look forward to reading that one already. Any any mixed game stuff, uh, you know, it's always uh, a favorite of mine. Do you ever get feedback, uh, you know, whether from your sponsors, backers, or just anyone who you share uh, your notes with? I do. Uh, not too much. Uh, but most of the people that back me are, don't play at the same level that I do. That They do play, but, you know, so they don't really feel... I kind of wish they would give a little more feedback, but I think they feel bad about criticizing and they don't want to get in my head or whatever. Got it. Uh, but I do get a couple sponsors that will answer and I, and I always appreciate it, whether it's good or bad. 
Sure. I mean, to me, it you know, again, just based on black and white statistics alone, you know, you look at someone, $4.3 million in tournament winnings going back 20 years, three WSOP bracelets, comfortable playing for, you know, huge limit mixed games. Of course, you know, offer, you know, someone like that offers me an opportunity to back them. Yeah, hell yeah, I'm going for it. I'm wondering from your side, you know, they tends to be, to the best of my knowledge, a lot less variance in fixed limit mixed games as opposed to no limit holder or pot limit Omaha, something like that. Why do you believe it's important for you to have backers, sponsors at this stage of your career rather than just go it solo? So uh, I, I vary my backing uh, depending on how I'm personally doing. Um, when I first started, it was probably like 65, 70% that I would sell. Um, unfortunately, I have lost a couple backers, you know, just over the years. Uh, sure. A couple backers have passed away. One has Alzheimer's that I mm. you know, feel really bad about. And uh, as I'm doing better, I've gotten, I've had World Series where I've only sold a third. Uh, oh, I'm nice. never going to completely get rid of the, the, like, I have a lot of sponsors that are, you know, I'm talking about a lot of people that take like one, two, three percent. Sure. Uh, it's not going to really affect the bottom line that much. So uh, those guys, and I've always been a very loyal person. If somebody wants to be part of the backing, they're going to be part of the backing. Even if I won a hundred million in a lottery and I, <laughs> I didn't care about the money, I would still have those same sponsors on board, maybe a lesser percentage but they would still be on board. That's great. And it's nice to have, you know, uh, poker has its ups and downs. And uh, there's times where where I've gone into a World Series saying, well, look, I need to sell a little more this year. Uh, COVID did that for me. I had mm. a couple of years where I just spent money and wasn't making any. Right. Um, we all know that that's not very good for the bankroll. So, <laughs> for sure. Um, and, and speaking where you're speaking about the variance in mixed games, uh, Variance, variance in mixed games is definitely lower than a game like Pot Lemon Omaha. Right. Um, inherently, I think No Limit Hold'em actually has a little less variance, hmm. or at least it used to when the fields were really soft. Now they've gotten a little tougher. Uh, I have had pretty consistent results over the years. Uh, I've won from 2005 to 22, so we're talking 15 years. Um, I have 12 of those years are winning years. Uh -huh. uh, the two that were losing were like less than 10% losing. Right. And I've only had one year where I really, I got back like less than half of what I bought in for. Um, so it is pretty consistent, but there's a lot of variance in there. Um, and like, if I was just playing the 1500s, I wouldn't feel the need to take backing. Mm -hmm. uh, but the 10 K and the 50 K, I mean, that, those are big buy-ins. Yeah. Those are, those are some for, big swings. For example, this World Series, I had a very good World Series by metrics um, as far as the amount of events I played. I played like 20 events, and I had a, a fourth and a ninth place. Uh -huh. But my fourth and ninth place came in uh, $2,500 and $3,000 buy-ins, and I whiffed the 50K, and I whiffed the 10Ks. Yeah. Uh, well, I had one cash in the 10K. So I wound up just eking out a, a very small profit. Right. Um, even though I had, you know, because my finishes didn't come in the right events. I think it's so yeah, it's you know it's so important to you know first of all I love the transparency and, and putting it out there it's really great and you know all of us you know the cards chat community as well there's just like you know you see numbers like I said black on white but you don't necessarily know the entire story behind it and you know it's so important to keep in mind you said well you whiff a couple of the big buy-in events 
yeah, it's it's tough to eke out a profit even if you do well on a couple of the smaller ones. So it makes a lot of sense. One thing I think my sponsors really appreciate is mm-hmm. before I write the World Series proposal or any any uh, tournament proposal, I list every buy-in. Mm. Uh, expenses. Uh, I include expenses as part of my sponsorship, which I know a lot of players don't, but I I feel like my skill level justifies that. And it's not an incredible expense, but maybe, you know, seven or eight thousand dollars during the series for lodging. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um so over the over the course of the World Series, I don't have my numbers right in front of me, but it's roughly uh, you know, I've spent Three million and gotten back like four point six million over over the, over the course of the whole time. Wow! Um, and you know, and to match that against just about anybody over time, I, you know, like so. I know a lot of us in the media kind of wish, like you know, you only see okay amount one. What a difference it would make! I'm like, no one really knows the entire truth of everyone's results. You know, like, wow, if everyone posted, well, how much did you lose? Also, like, that would put things into a lot of perspective. I think for a lot of people, Um, definitely want to talk a lot more mixed games, WSOP bracelets, WSOP itself. But we got to go back to to the first frame. You had a career as a professional bowler. You know, you were showing off uh, the T-shirt there. Um, And I just kind of want to know, like, you know, was it at all, the only bowling I really know, like, was it at all like the Bill Murray, Woody Harrelson, Kingpin? And I just kind of want to know, like, unless your name is, you know, was it Walter Ray Williams Jr. or Pete Weber? You know, what is it like bowling for a living? Okay, so uh, I started – I played golf on my school golf team. I've always been kind of a, a you know, a, a quasi athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I took up bowling when I was 16 and I, I started getting really good at it when I was like a freshman in college. And I started bowling tournaments on the weekends. Uh, you know, we're talking 50, 60 buck entry fee. You might spend uh-huh. a couple hundred on some extra side bets and I would pay my bills that way. Um, okay. You know, uh, my dad would help me out a little bit, but, uh, but mostly I was paying my bills that way. Um, I used to pot bowl, uh, which I don't, that term may not be familiar, but you know, you'd have 10 people throw in five bucks or 10 bucks in bowl a game and whoever bowled the highest game got oh, all the money. That's cool. Um, and then that branched out as I got a little better, uh, into two levels of bowling. I used to go to these mega bucks tournaments. We're almost always in Las Vegas, uh, two or three times a year. Right. Uh, and those had, those had big entry fees of like a, a thousand, Fifteen hundred, even two thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars, which was a lot of money at the time for my age and also for the bowling community. Sure. Uh, and I also bowled some professional tournaments uh, as an amateur at the time, uh, and those uh, they have regional events that are not the ones that are on TV, right. but you still compete against a lot of the, the same level. And I would bowl those in Georgia and Florida and Virginia and North Carolina and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the regional level, I was not very successful because I wasn't good enough. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a couple good finishes, a couple top 15 finishes uh, and some catches, but those guys were better than me. Uh-huh. Uh, on the mega buck level, I had some more success uh, because I wasn't competing against professionals. Right. Um, and, and they also had really hard conditions at these tournaments to kind of level the field. Uh-huh. And I was a good spare shooter. Uh, so in 1992, uh, I came out to one at Samstown, and that was actually right when I was beginning to play poker because uh-huh. uh, I played a little poker on the side time. Uh, and I, I, the, my first match, I bowled a guy named Mike Newman, who anybody that knows anything about bowling will know. He's from New York and one of the best amateurs ever. Yeah. And I ha- drew him in the first round in a match play tournament, which was bad luck. <laughs> uh, and I managed to, I managed to beat him. Oh wow! Um, 
And that gave me so much confidence. Mm. And I had also been been bowling a lot. Uh, I'd been competing against a really good bowler back home uh, who sharpened my game. So I wound up going all the way through the field to the final match. Uh, I had a chance to win. I left the 10 pin when I needed to strike in the 10th frame. But I, I made a good shot. And uh, I wound up winning $25,000 for that tournament. That's pretty nice. At, at my age is, uh, I guess, my second year in college. Uh, that was all the money in the world. Oh, I was yeah. able to buy a new car. Um, and I, I stayed with bowling. I kept bowling on the amateur level. Uh, in 2000, uh, I was already starting to have some success as a poker player. And the Professional Bowlers Association uh, got bought by some ex-Microsoft people. Uh-huh. And they were put a lot of money into it. And I said to myself, it's not about the money, but I always wanted to know, you know, can I compete against the best? So uh-huh. let me give it a shot. Uh, I went to the thing called the Kegel Training Center in Florida, uh, really honed my game the best I could. I practiced. I got new equipment. And I went out and I bowled four tour stops, the U.S. Open and three other tour stops, just to see where I stood. Hmm. And there were – not that I couldn't have lived out there and maybe you know eventually learned enough to get some checks and maybe make a TV show. Right. But there were like between like five to ten guys out there that were just – better than me on a level that I was never going to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're talking about the famous names like Norm Duke and Walter oh, Ray wow. Williams. And, and, and I would watch those guys bowl and they were just better. They mm. just, uh, they made more consistently accurate shots than I think I could have ever gotten to. Mm-hmm. And given the way bowling pays, uh, that there's not that much money in it to begin with. Right. And, and what money there is, you need to make TV shows. Right. Uh, it just didn't make any sense. So, uh, you know, I'm happy that I gave myself a shot. I got to bowl with those great guys. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I realized that there's, there's that next level that, um, that, you know, I think I'm at it poker. I, I could never mm-hmm. get to in bowling. So was the goal just to sort of, you know, did you, when you started with the bowling, you know, was it more of like, I really want to try and reach the top or is it really, this is a cool, fun way to try and just support myself and make a living, you know, even at my level, if it's not, you know, A plus, it's still, you know, A minus or B plus level. And like, I'm cool with that. Was, was that the goal or was it something? Else? I don't know that I ever thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'm sure I wanted to be a professional. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about that, but, but it wasn't like, uh, I was, I just kept trying to get better every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I enjoyed the tournaments. I enjoyed the competition and keep in mind, I was a college student at the same time. So I, you know, I had multiple options as to what, you know, what I could do. Right. Um, I thought about, um, yeah. <laughs> actually b- before poker ever came around, uh, I thought, I kind of thought that I was going to end up either being a professional bowler or if I wasn't good enough, um, I could go into like one of the training programs and and be a manager or a regional manager for oh, a company okay. like Brunswick. Uh, I know I'd be good at that. I, I worked at a bowling alley for a while, uh-huh. uh, actually almost three years. Oh. And so uh, that was really my, the last job I had. Um, and I know I would have been very good at that. Um, you know, I, I love the sport. Uh, I knew it inside and out and what the customers would want. Um, and it, but you know, once once the poker bug bit, that, that was it for normal normal jobs. So. For sure. Well, I, I got one last, I think, pre-poker question for you. So all of the stuff you're talking about, I'm wondering how, if at all, it ties into the fact that you studied psychology 
you know, why did you choose that as a major? And was there any sort of, you know, thought that you'd progress in that field at all? I, I did consider that. My father, who I'm very close with, uh, he passed away in, in 2009 uh, after I, I won the, the big tournament, mm. which I was thrilled I, he got to see that. Um, he was a clinical psychologist and had a huh. private practice in Athens, Georgia for, wow, 25 years at least. Right. Um, and I, that was ready made for me if I wanted that as a job. Uh, the problem yes. is, is to, to get to that level, uh, you're talking about a lot more school than what I went to. Uh-huh. I would have had to get a master's, a doctorate, internship. Um, and to put that much time into schooling, you have to be sure that it's what you want. Um, when I graduated college, um, I decided to give poker a shot. Mm-hmm knowing that, it, you know, I could give it a year or so. And if it flamed out, I could go back to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was successful right from the get-go with poker. So, right. Uh, and the, the psychology aspect, you know, obviously my father's a psychologist. I've been God blessed with, with a real talent in psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very good at reading people and kind of knowing what they're going to do based on the psychology of that person in that moment. Uh, well, that's I'm a able to skill use at that. the table. <laughs> yeah. I'm able I'm able to use that in poker. <laughs> For sure. And I use that in a lot of aspects of my life. Uh during the pandemic and, and really right now, uh, I've been doing a lot of daily fantasy. Uh and at first I sucked at it just like you know, anytime you're new at something. Uh, but what I learned to do is even though it's a very statistics-driven sport, mm-hmm. um, I take my psychology and I apply it to daily fantasy. Hmm. Um being that when I'm successful, it's because I'm watching the games and I'm seeing interviews from players ah. and, and and getting and and kind of trying to get in their head and, and get something that the numbers aren't quite showing. Uh-huh. Interesting. It's like the guys who stand by the stables and try to hear the jockey talking to the horse and, and listen to something. I, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, so okay, so poker kind of became, you know, began to become more part of your life. You start, you said you started to find success pretty much right away. Uh, did you have any like early influences? Were you studying? Like, you know, besides saying, oh, okay, this is cool. I'm earning money. You know, what was sort of giving you the hunger to keep on playing more and more? Uh, I read every book that I could get my hands on. Mm. Um, you know, and actually back at the beginning, it wasn't that easy to, uh, to, you know, there wasn't Amazon and all that. So, uh, if I took a trip to Las Vegas for bowling, I'd come back with, you know, 10 poker books. I'd go to Gambler's, uh, Gambler's Books Book General Club Store, or yeah. Gambler, Gambler's General Store, and yeah. I'd, I'd buy every book that looked like it was even decent. Um, and uh, at the time, I should be doing it more now, but at the time, I would I would work out after my poker sessions, and I'd read, uh, I'd read one of the poker books or reread it. Um, uh, I actually did something pretty neat in... Uh, this was 1997, I believe. Uh, I walked up to David Sklansky and asked him for a poker lesson. That's uh, he was cool. at playing playing a game at the time. And he said, "Sure, just buy me dinner and uh, give me a couple hundred bucks, and I'll give you a poker lesson." Okay. So we went to the Chinese restaurant at the Golden Nugget and uh, just sat with him for like an hour and a half and and asked him questions. Wow! And what do you and, remember and, from from like having learned from the experience? So uh, I learned what I learned from him uh, and what I was asked, I was having trouble with that w- wasn't in the books was matchups. Um, hmm. Matchups are very important in seven card stud, which uh, was the first game I got real good at. And the game I was specializing in the casinos when I first started to go. Right. 
And what I found was in certain games, they played very loose and certain hands would match up very poorly to loose games. Uh So what I'm talking about is like a pair of jacks with like a six kicker Uh where the most likely good hand you're going to make is jacks up, which heads up. That's great. Um, But if you're playing in a five way pot, jacks up is probably not going to win at the end of the hand. Right. And and so and so we discussed, you know, how to deal with those type of games. And and maybe like not even play that pair of jacks or, or play it real cautiously, trying to make a big hand out of it, um, especially if it's dead. Uh, but then the hands that are favorable are like your ace high three flushes. And, and you know, when you get a, a huge hand like a rolled up, you're going to get more action on it. Sure. And, so at what point did you start saying to yourself, OK, you know, beyond enjoying this and being good at it and, you know, making some money, say, OK, maybe I could do this for a living. And, you know, rest comfortably, not having to go back to, uh, you know, being an employee at a, you know, at a bowling alley. I think I knew it right away. Uh, mm. I had a lot of success at poker right away. I mean, it just, you know, I have a gift for it. Mm. And uh, I had a, I had my struggles on my first casino trips because you're playing against a different level of opponent. Sure. Uh, but the home games, I would just win almost every session. Mm-hmm. Um now, some of that was benefited by the fact we were playing 40-hour sessions and I was in my 20s and, and fresh. Right. Uh, it, the Early in my career, I would have a little cycle where I'd win like 20000 in a month at home, do that for two months, and I'd come out to Vegas or go to the commerce, and, uh, and, I'd, and I'd blow most of that money and have to go back home. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, uh, I got good enough to beat those, those games on the road also. Right. So I want to actually uh, ask about that dynamic. You know, your home state is Georgia. To the best of my knowledge, there's certainly no casinos, but I don't think there's any poker clubs or maybe one. I've heard like Little Kings and Queens or something like there really isn't. They got shut down. Yeah, uh, yeah right. So like this, yeah, yeah. I mean, you talk about like basically all you had uh, was and continues to be uh, home games. So how did that work? I mean, you know, how often were you able to play? If you're doing this for a living, you know, so how are you able to do that? And how often did you have to leave home and, and go and find casinos and poker rooms elsewhere? So that changed for me uh, as my life changed. Uh, when I was younger, I used to play like three days a week, but they were long days. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I would play, I drive to Atlanta. Uh, I made a couple connections through going to Biloxi, Mississippi which is about a seven hour drive. I used mm-hmm. to go there on the weekends before I knew there were any games. Okay. So I would go to Mississippi. I made a co- connection with a, a guy that dealt cards in Atlanta and I found out about some home games and then you get to know people. Yeah. And so I would play like three days a week in Atlanta. Um, I might play one more day uh, in this little uh, log cabin. We used to play out in a town called Cornelia, Georgia. <laughs> that was actually the first place I ever played poker. My dad took me there when I was on my 21st birthday. Um, and they played seven, they played seven card stud with paper money. Uh, wow. They used to play in this log cabin. One time, uh, how how rustic this was. One time there was a scorpion that crawled across the middle of the table, and somebody flicked it on my lap. I've never I've never stood up that fast from a poker table. Now I know what you mean by you say you got a lot of material to put in a book. That's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool stuff. And uh, so I used to play in that home game. Uh, I used to play in the home games in Atlanta, which were a little more sophisticated with dealers and chips and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I kept doing that. And then I would go to the World Series every year. I'd go, you know, to the LA Poker Classic. Yeah. Um, and then uh, around 
2008, I met my now wife. Um, and I was already kind of playing a little bit more in casinos than I was in home games, but I was uh-huh. still fine with playing in home games. Uh, but also, you know, in the, in the mid 2000s, you know, poker boomed and got real popular. Yeah. And what started happening is some of the games in Atlanta started getting robbed. Oh, and I, I never cared about getting busted. It never happened to me, but I never cared. The worst thing to do is give you a little fine. But robbery is scary because you never know what a criminal will do if they panic. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't want to get shot. Um, and actually, one of the one of the games my friends ran, uh, my friend ran, somebody got shot. Um, they actually got their balls shot off. I mean, it was pretty bad. Wow. Um, so. I kind of said to myself, I still tinkered with the home games a little bit up through uh, my wife getting pregnant. Uh, but once she got pregnant and we had a son, I'm just like, this is not worth it. Right. Um, yes, I can make money in these home games, but it's just not worth the risk. And mm-hmm. so I have not played a home game uh, in seven and a half years and and probably won't unless it's an extremely secure situation. Sure. Well, uh, sure. Even. The la- even the last couple of years when I did play, um, I was playing in an American Legion where uh-huh. we gave we gave half the rake to charity uh-huh. and it was basically protected by the police because sure. it was an American Legion. Sure. Wow. So I have to ask then, you know, so many poker players, they go ahead, pick up and move to Vegas or, you know, it doesn't have to be there. It could be anywhere where there's, you know, they always say your home casino, you know, where it's an hour driver less. Uh, So why is that something that, you know, or maybe that is something that you thought of doing, but something's maybe kept you specifically rooted in Georgia? Well, I'll tell you, we had some long discussions about that, me and my wife, Um, um, because it is very hard. I, I don't get to work as much. Um, when I go home, it's it's hard for me to leave. Mm-hmm. And so therefore I'm not earning as much as I should because mm-hmm. I stay at home. Um, Vegas was the first place we discussed. Uh, it's natural because I'm already here for, for the World Series two months a year anyway. Um, I've even I even bought a condo back when uh, back in 2012 here when the, the games were really good. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is is I don't think Las Vegas is a good place to raise my son. Um, my wife and I both love it. It's great. All the restaurants, all the stuff that there is to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just don't think it's a good place to raise a son. I'm not saying you can't, you know, there's plenty of friends I have that do a great job with their kids here. Sure. Um, and, and of course the parents are way more important than the town, yeah. no matter what, mm-hmm. but I just see all the kind of scumminess in Las Vegas, mm. people sleeping on the street and the, you know, the, 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 the one thing that I really like about Georgia um, is for the most part, when somebody tells you they're going to do something, they do it. They're honest. Hmm. Um, and you don't get that as much in Las Vegas. Uh-huh. And, and I just, yeah, I didn't really want to, uh, my son's already got a poker player for a father. Um, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to raise him in, in Las Vegas. So that was ultimately, um, the no to Las Vegas. I have thought about some other cities, uh, Phoenix is a place that I'm I'm still considering. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have we have a nice little house that I've lived in since 1999. You know, oh. it's nothing fancy, but we have like three quarters of an acre of property mm-hmm. and it's quiet. There's trees, there's birds, there's deer running through our yard every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a nice place to live and grow yeah. up. That's nice. And my wife likes it there. And and these days with the housing prices. Yeah. Um, and land being it, it would be very hard to duplicate that somewhere else 
without you know multi millions of dollars. Yeah, you know? that that's fair. So and yeah. and then you know yeah. you can always just get on the plane. You don't have to drive seven hours anymore if you don't want to. So and I'll tell you something else. You know, being honest about sure. it, um, for a relationship, um, it's not so bad to to have little breaks. This is the what I'm doing now is way longer than I want. But for me to go away for two weeks and come back home, you know, you appreciate you appreciate each other more. Um, because when I'm at home, I'm at home all the time. Yeah. Like uh, I, I'm not somebody that's going off to work for eight hours a day. I'm at home all the time. Uh, you can get on top of each other a little bit uh, like that. So uh, part of the traveling is not so bad, but uh-huh. uh, it, currently it's too much. Um, right. You know, in a perfect world, I'd have a, a private plane and I could fly back and forth, <laughs> or just have them join you for a day or two. Like, yeah, I uh, actually did have I did have my wife and son come out uh, after the series and before school started. Oh, that's nice. Spent some time together. So that's yeah. great. Well, and my, now my son absolutely loves loves Las Vegas, which is probably yet another reason why I, he shouldn't be living here. <laughs> he likes it too much. Yeah. Well, absence does make yeah. the heart uh, grow fonder in, in a very in a very real way. Um, well, you have obviously we talked all, a lot about live poker, and you said online poker, of course, and we all know is not the same thing. But you've won the triple crown online. Uh, you know, you've done uh, quite a, a lot of uh, you know you had a lot of success online. Um, do you play it all online these days? Um, and if so, or if not, you know, what is it that you did or do enjoy about online play, uh, you know, when, when physical tells and all that stuff is just not really, you know, the, even the psychology to a degree is not as much part of it as in live, in live poker. The best thing about online poker, and it's really important and it blows everything else away, is the speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the amount of hands you can get in uh, is awesome, especially uh, in tournaments. Um you, there's a, a much better chance for the skill to come to the top uh, when you're playing a lot of hands. Uh, currently, uh, I play in a uh, online poker club uh, that Alan Kessler started. Uh, John Turner was actually part of founding it, and they invited me in fairly early in the process. I'm actually one of the administrators. I help with the rules and if there's any controversies or anything like that. Right. And we've got a nice little group. We all know each other. You have to be approved. Um, although, you know, it's not hard to get in, but, um, you know, like you have to post unless you're really well known uh-huh. and, uh, and we're able to, we use a free software and we're able to, uh, to just settle amongst ourselves. We pay nice. somebody a couple bucks, the tournament to do the bookkeeping. And it's been a great place to play during the pandemic. And I sure. still play on there. Some, uh, also really helped me sharpen my, my, uh, tournament skills, just mm. getting that many reps in. And I love that group. I really I like playing online. We you know we play a, a two hour tournament and it's like an eight hour tournament because we're getting so many hands in. Everybody right. in the group plays pretty fast, right? And so you know we get a lot of hands in. It's re- that part's really nice. Um, and yes, I it, I disparage online poker because I have some some problems with it, but uh, I yeah I have had a lot of success. Um, I've I've won the Sunday Million. I won yeah. uh, a couple scoops and a, and a couple W coops. And uh, I had, I'm going to go ahead and put this out there. I've been kind of hesitant. Uh, I was actually waiting for like, till I won the main event or something, but um, <laughs> I have a real problem with poker stars. Um, I'm going to tell you this story. Um, now I, I've kept this to myself and I didn't even think about it till I didn't think I was going to tell you this today, okay. but I feel like it's time. Okay. Um, my wife was pregnant in seven years ago. So 2000, 
15, 2014, 15. And I had, uh, we lived in Panama together. So I set up a poker stars account in Panama and sure. played from there quite a bit when I was down there. Uh, and I always had an amazing relationship with poker stars. Um, I did interviews for them. You know, I'd won some of their big tournaments. I liked the company. Now they had during this time gotten sold, um, and they uh-huh. weren't the same company. Um, so I had never thought about like VPNing or, or doing anything like that. I, I played by the rules. I set up a, a, I had a house in Panama. I sent them a utility bill. I got approved and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened now is uh, like I talked about earlier, sometimes you go through stretches in poker where your bankroll is not quite what you want it to be. And I wanted to work. Um, but my wife was here on a fiance visa. She's from Columbia. Uh-huh. Um, and she was pregnant. And I didn't feel that I could leave her here as not a good English speaker and pregnant. I couldn't leave her here alone and go out of the country. I just couldn't. Right. And she couldn't go out of the country because she was on a fiance visa. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I had heard during that summer's World Series from a friend, uh, it turned out to be bad advice, that you could play on a VPN. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the worst thing they would do is maybe suspend you for like six months. Mm-hmm. So I decided to try it. First time I ever did it. Um, I had a friend that helps me with computers at home. He set me up a VPN. Uh, I deposited $8,000 from uh, you know a, a transfer with somebody else that I knew that played on mm-hmm. PokerStars. Mm-hmm. And I played for a week and I got caught. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in that week, I, I put in $8,000. Um, I won four. Um, PokerStars caught me. They sent me a, a, a mail telling me you know that they had suspicions. Uh, I was honest with them. Okay. I spent an hour and a half, two hours on a phone call with a guy named Fritz from their security team. He was very nice. Mm-hmm. I was totally honest with him. Uh, I figured, you know, just throw myself on their mercy, you know, and maybe they'll end up suspending me. Um, you know, but I did it. I, mm-hmm. I have to be honest about right. it. I, I've never thought VPNing was something all that bad or would have never done it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a person that would ever cheat in any way. VPNing is just, you're just playing from a different hotel room or a different house. Right. Not, it doesn't affect the poker play. Right. So, um, so, but I did it. Um, they decided to take all of my money, not, not just the, uh, what I won, but the deposit also, mm. uh, they gave it to charity. I, I actually play with the person, uh, the other two days ago, I played with a person that used to work for Bunker Starts. They gave my money to charity. So I, I know it did get given to charity. Okay. Um, and I think fig- and I figured I would just have to eat it. Um, and eventually, you know, maybe they'd let me back in. Um, what I'm mad about is they basically threw the book at me. Mm-hmm. I tried a couple different times. I waited a couple years. Uh, I waited, I sent them an email, they said no. Mm-hmm. Uh, I waited a few more years, I sent them another email. Um and the last time that I wrote them, they replied me with the nastiest email, oh. basically like telling me that I was like the scum of the earth, that oh, I was like cheating their system and cheating other players, and that they would that my band was a lifetime band. And, wow. and I'm furious with them as a company. Mm. And that's why I'm telling you this story now, even though it's probably not the greatest story for me to tell. Um they're just it currently they used to be a great company but currently they're a lousy company um they treat people really poorly 
Uh-huh. They were actually, and uh, actually, uh, back up a little bit. I need to tell you kind of the middle of this story. One of the times when I was trying to get reapproved by them, they actually said they would give me my account back if I could tell them other people that were VPNing and somebody uh-huh. that was running a like a VPN ring. Now, first of all, I never, I didn't even you know. You wouldn't know. Were. Right. Yeah, you don't do that. Um, but if I did know, I wouldn't rat out my friends for something as innocent as VPNing anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that goes to show you how hypocritical they were being. Mm. They weren't just they weren't just suspending me because what I did was wrong, which I could kind of understand. But they were willing to give me my account back if I'd rat other people out. Mm. Um, and, and and that was that together with the the last email that they sent me. I'm just furious with the company, and and so I wanted to get this story out there because it should be out there. Well, you know, honesty is uh, you know very important. It's important to you know speak your mind, not censor yourself or anything like that. And um, you know, sometimes uh, yeah, it's just difficult situations. One thing you know, one you know, everyone could kind of agree on. And again, kudos for your honesty about you know, yeah, you, you said you did do it, like that sort of a thing. But you know, the the whole idea of having to VPN in the first place is just unfortunate that they're not fully licensed. You know, we all wish that. Uh, you know, back in the days, you know, before Black Friday, you know, anyone could just log in from anywhere and play. Those were the golden years because there's always yeah. billions of games to choose from. Like, it's just unfortunate because at the end of the day, you know, like, you know, like the era of prohibition of alcohol and stuff, it's something people want to do. And, you know, it's the, the necessity of like, oh, I want to play. So, OK, this is the way I can do it. And, you know, you explained your own particular extenuating circumstances there and like, you know, there's always exceptions to rules or, or whatever it be, you know, but, um, you know, it, it, the situation is what it is. But, you know, kudos to you for your honesty, David. It's uh, important to, you know, always, uh, you know, to, to speak. to speak. Thank you. And, and the reason why I've been hesitant about that is because, I, you know, I, you know, I could, I'm not the most famous person in poker, but I, you know, I have some fame. I, I would like to you know, work with a casino or work with an online company in the future. Um, and I was a little hesitant to tell that story because the the fact of the matter is I did break the terms of the service. Yeah. Um, but there is such a I, thing as time served, though, you know, so. yeah, I feel in my, I feel in my heart, what I did was like next to nothing. I mean, mm-hmm. look, Justin Bonomo multi-accounted, which I, I really feel is wrong. And, uh, and he's one of the big famous people in poker. Um, and I, I know the poker community looks on VPNing as like the, very smallest defense that you could possibly ever do. Um, yeah. Well, uh, you know, the, the yeah. last question I have for you, we're not there yet, but the last question I had sort of, you know, wants to, you know, you're obviously someone of, uh, you know, of integrity and, you know, speaks honestly, like you said, also like, you know, in, in Georgia, they tell you something, they're going to do it. So I'm curious to hear your yeah. thoughts. We'll, we'll get to that uh, towards the end of, uh, of my questions, but uh, I did want to ask you a little bit more about uh, the mixed game stuff. Um, you know, you said you started playing, you know, in the nineties okay. and that people don't necessarily know that, you know, before the moneymaker era, you know, where we're so used to it, it's 20, 20 years almost of moneymaker already. Uh, and, you know, no limit Holden being on our TV screens, the world poker tour, et cetera. Um, Back in the 90s, you know, when you said you want to go and play poker, seven card stud was the game. You know, maybe you'll find some limit hold'em and that sort of stuff. Um, is that where you got the mixed game bug from and just sort of carried on from there? Or is there something specific about mixed games that you enjoy more uh than the no limit hold'em? Uh both. Um mm. we we started out, uh, I started out playing seven card stud as one of my main games. Uh, we also used to play a uh, little home game that we would play uh, that was dealer's choice. Okay. You could basically whatever you can make up. Yep. <laughs> um, 
the games that I played in Atlanta uh, when I first started playing there. Um, funny story is uh, when I first started playing in Atlanta, uh, Josh Aria actually dealt to me at the first game I played in. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, that's funny. And, and, and then very, very shortly after that, he was playing. Uh-huh. And we were all playing three and six dollar limit. Uh, at, at one time I was playing, uh, he's not as famous, but excellent player, a guy named Mark Wilds. So Mark Wilds, Josh Ari, and myself, Wilds. Uh, Mark Wilds. Uh-huh. Uh, he lives in Mississippi. Um, we were all playing in the same game. The poor other people in the game were playing <laughs> with a 4% uncapped rake. And they're playing with three people that are going to be future successful professionals. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but but we, we would play dealer's choice. And, uh, and you, know, you had to play pretty well to beat a 4% uncapped rake. Um, and so I played all those, all those sort of mixed games. And, uh, I used to play a horse game where they, uh, I don't know how they came up with this, but the, the signs for the games were the letters H O R S E like, uh, like brass letters that you would see on like a door for like apartment H (laughs) that's what we actually used to indicate what the game was. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Um, so okay, I'm curious. So we talked about the tournaments. We talked about cash games. You know, I, I mentioned that I had the you know the pleasure privilege of playing with you uh, recently in that mixed game that you're referring to. Um, how is it different? Again, you don't want you don't want to give away uh, you know the farm, the book, that sort of a thing. But what strategically is different going into a mixed cash game versus a mixed tournament? cash game versus a tournament um because you're pretty the reason i ask is because you're pretty deep stacked usually uh in both so you know beyond just you know having that one tournament life and wanting to survive to the end you know when you go into a session like that um you know what what sort of strategy if there's any sort of particular differences or approaches to it so the level of player that can survive in a cash game is much higher um, mm. especially, at, you know, once you get into the, you know, higher mid stakes limits that, I, that I'm playing at, uh, the 8160 and higher, um, the average player is like the best player at a tournament table. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the, the cash game lineup is going to be much, much tougher. Um, but balancing that is, is in a tournament, people are really trying their best. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people in a cash game, they're distracted you know, or they have plenty of money. They don't care if they lose or they're drinking or they're eating or watching the ball game. Mm -hmm. So people aren't playing as hard in a cash game, Uh, but they're much better players. They understand the fundamentals. Um, So in a tournament, um, you're playing with worse players. Uh, Something that I've always been pretty good at is playing against bad players. Like that requires some kind of unusual, like maybe not by the book adjustments. Uh And so that I think that's one of the reasons I've had a lot of success in tournaments. The other thing that happens in tournaments uh, in the later stages is pressure. Mm-hmm. And people will respond to the pressure in some rather unusual ways. Sometimes they play a lot worse. Hmm. And I've always been kind of well-trained under pressure from going back to the bowling that we talked about. Um, I was always somebody that was good under pressure in bowling. And to respond under pressure in bowling is much harder than poker, mm-hmm. even though the poker is so much more money Yeah, because in bowling, you have to control your body and your mind at the same time. And where in poker, all you have to do is control your mind. And so it's, it's actually much easier. Uh, I've never found 
if anything, the pressure in poker makes me hyper focused and play better. Nice. Cool. Very interesting. And, and, yeah. and so I, I think that that addresses your question pretty yeah, well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for sharing that. That's, you know, like I, I, as much as I loved it, I know I have not played many mixed game tournaments. So it's always curious to hear someone who's obviously, uh, you know, done both, uh, you know, to hear the difference. Now, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, do you have a particularly uh, favorite game, like uh, in Dealer's Choice, that, you know, you wouldn't call it because then everyone knows it's your game. But if someone else calls that game, you're like, ah, okay, good. This is going to be a good one. Well, in Dealer's Choice, you do have to be responsive to the table. Right. Um, and you also have to be respons- responsive to the stage of the tournament. That's actually, I think Dealer's Choice is by far the best uh, poker tournament format mm-hmm. because of that. Because because there's so much variety you can choose based on what the other people are doing, right. where the stacks are at, all the all those sorts of things. But I generally like to choose like uh, early in a tournament, I'll choose a game like Raz, uh, which people, despite the reputation as being simple, a lot of people play it pretty badly. And it's a one winner game, which lets you acquire right. chips, which mm-hmm. that's what you're trying to do early in the tournament. And then later in the tournament, um, I'm a little more responsive to what other people are playing poorly, mm-hmm. uh, but I'll also start to look at you know where the stacks are at, um, as particularly as you approach the final table. Like uh, the dealer's choice that I won in 2017, uh, I had a big chip lead at the final table, and I chose no limit single draw, even though that's not my best game, um, because you can put immense pressure on people. Yeah. Basically, anytime I had like a good draw or a or a made rough hand. I could put somebody all in for their tournament life. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I was able to really apply the pressure in a game like that. Very cool. Interesting. Okay. Uh, well, one of the things folks know about uh, mixed games, they tend to be, you know, especially these days, significantly chattier uh, than, a, than a typical no limit hold'em table. Oh, for sure. And faster. Yeah. Yeah. So what, one of the questions we always ask our uh, cards chat interviewees, uh, could you tell us the friendliest player you've ever had the pleasure of competing against oh wow uh, that's a tough question um you can name more than one if if more than one comes to mind wow i mean i, I play with a really a lot the group that we play currently at resorts world we're just really like fun people um mm-hmm. i will say um we have some really fun discussions. Uh, Ali Najad is one of the regulars and, you know, he does the poker commentary. He has oh, yeah. An incredible wit. And we'll be sitting at the poker table and we'll bring up stuff that's like so politically incorrect and, and <laughs> telling these funny stories. And it's just we have a hilarious time at the poker table. Okay, that's fair. Well, Alina Jad, folks, uh, if you already, I'm, I'm sure everyone knows him, but if you didn't know this, folks, we had him on episode number 60. Uh, so you could listen ah, to okay. him. Yeah, he's a, he's a, it was a really cool interview. I did that one in person. That was a good one. Um, so, yeah, so thank you for sharing that one. Um, so here's a trivia question for you, David. Uh, you know, from, you know, you're on the Georgia all-time winningest uh, tournament player uh, list. You're number five. Can you name the four players ahead of you? I followed all the way to five. Wow. Uh, well, I know you're, Josh you're very close to number four. Uh, I know Josh Ari is ahead of me. I believe Daniel Weinman had an excellent World Series and moved ahead of me. He's not ahead um, of me. No, he's not. Okay. Um, Billy Baxter, would he be ahead of me? or Nope. He doesn't play enough anymore. Um, I, to tell you the truth, I don't know the other ones then. Okay. Carrie Katz. 
original. Oh, of course, Gary. I, I think of him from Las Vegas. I, I, right. Carrie <laughs> and I are very friendly. I actually talked with him on the phone like a month ago because oh, uh, cool. we're both graduate. We're both graduates of the University of Georgia. Uh, for some reason, I just didn't I didn't think of him for being from Georgia because he's uh, right. He's so, so I think he's associated with now. Las yeah. Vegas. I think he's got like yeah. thirty. I think he's probably top thirteen or fourteen all time. Uh, he's oh, the stakes, it, and the stakes he's playing, and, and and don't let him fool you. He's a much better poker player than than he would want you to know. So, <laughs> you, you don't yeah. get to that yeah. high on the money list, even yeah. at those limits, yeah. without being a yeah. good player. That's for sure. So he's yeah. number one. Josh Arie, number two. Ankush Mandavia, number three. Um, and number four. I know him. I didn't know he was from Georgia. Oh, okay. And uh, number four, George Home Game Holmes. Finished uh, running oh, up in the main event. Yeah, I saw him play in the main event. Yeah, but you you are within about forty fifty thousand dollars of catching him. So you'll pro- he's got two results on his entire hand in mob profile. So <laughs> I think you'll probably catch him pretty soon. Um, uh, two three more questions, then we'll get to the community question. You you okay on time? By the way. Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay. No cool. Uh, okay. So you've reached yeah. thirteen WSOP final tables. Poker has evolved a lot. You know, we said your first bracelet was in 2009. You win bracelets number two and three in 2017. There's a gap there. And we always talk, you know, over the last 10, 15 years of how much Hold'em strategy uh, has evolved and the learning curve and people are getting so much better, so much more quickly. Um, And, you know, consistently you continue to perform, be successful and, you know, be at the top. Um, What's that like, you know, making these final tables across this, you know, this, this gulf of time, what has that felt like for you? Or has there not really, you can't really, I mean, maybe when you're in the moment, it's difficult to notice the difference, but no, here you are, you know, you know, a podcast, maybe you can reflect on what the final table dynamic, the final table experience is like nowadays, the last couple of years versus, you know, when you first started making final tables. But first of all, I'm a poker player. Um, and my job is to is to evolve with the with the times. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a way better poker player now than I was in 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, but the game has gotten quite a bit tougher. Um, if I could go back and and put my skills I have now in 2005, I'd, you know, there's still luck, but you, I'd win a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. uh, especially at no limit, my no limit game is leaps and bounds better than it was. Mm-hmm. Um, the mixed games themselves, uh, some of them have not changed that much. Like the uh, the fundamentals of Raz and Stud 8 or better are not that different. Um, there are some games that have been a little kind of, quote, solved, um, hmm. at least at, in our cash game level. Like, um, I think people play a game like Triple Draw close to perfectly in our, in our cash game. Um, people still play it terrible in the tournaments. Um, and that's what I was talking about, about the difference between a, uh, the cash game skill and the tournament skill. Right. Um, a lot of people know like what they're supposed to talk about and what they're supposed to be thinking about hmm. at the final table, like ICM and uh, you know, how things change uh, on the pay schedules and, hmm. and different things. But when you put people under the heat of that final table, uh, people are still people, and they're going to respond to the pressure in in many different ways, and that's always going to be an edge that I'm going to have mm-hmm. is 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 looking at that person, uh, 
you know, really closely observing what's going on and, and adjusting to that. And, and I don't think that's ever going to change. Mm-hmm. And then what the other thing that's changed um, that I wanted to comment on is, you know, there's so much great computer technology out there now, particularly like for a game like Clement Oldham, which is almost kind of solved in yeah. some ways. Um, that's why in our, in our mixed games, we're constantly creating new variations of poker, uh-huh. you know, games like Dramaha and Double yeah. Board Omaha, uh, because we want to keep that element of poker where you have to think for yourself, the not purity. where you can just look right. on your, yeah. not where you can just look on your phone and and see, well, this is the right way to play this hand, right? Um, and I think the only way to do that these days is is to create new games. Hmm. I like it. Oh, very. It definitely uh, resonates strongly with 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 me. And I look, you know, want to put 30, 40, 50 plex? Sure, bring them on. Oh, I like it. Uh, so we'll get to the last one before we get to the community questions. You know, I mentioned you, I prepped you in advance. I said we got a little bit of a doozy uh, for the last question, um, you know, through Twitter, but also, of course, now through talking with you and folks, if you've been listening till now, you can see someone, uh, David's clearly some of the very strong moral code, not just at the table, but also away from the felt. Um, you know, it's a big question. You know, we're all aware of, you know, the big hand everyone's talking about. You know, is it cheating? Isn't I don't want to get into the weeds there, but there's kind of been a lot going on, uh, you know, which you could classify or categorize under, you know, scandalous uh, part of poker in the you know, last couple of years or so. What are your thoughts on all of that in general? Or if you want to be specific, totally fine. And, you know, if, you know, you could wave some sort of magic wand and clean up the game somehow, what would you like to see more of? And, and what would you like to see less of? Okay, so there's a few things. First of all, I'm going to quickly give my opinion on the uh, Robbie scandal. Um, Not this Robbie. Just letting everyone know. The different <laughs> Robbie. The one without the um, okay. On the Hustler Casino Live stream. Yeah. Uh, I've actually... Uh, spent more time than I should following it. So I, I, I'm reasonably well-informed. Uh, there's no way anybody knows for sure, first of all. Uh, my personal psychological read, which is my area of strength, uh, is that she's innocent, that she's just an emotional person, made an emotional bad play at the table. You, know, you see it all the time. And then tried to come up with some goofy reasons to justify it. I totally could be wrong. She could be guilty. There's plenty of evidence pointing that way. Uh, but that's my read at this moment. Okay. Uh, moving on to some of the other stuff that's going on in poker, uh, I wanted to address the RFID chips and cards because I feel very strongly about that. Mm-hmm. I have felt very strongly about that. I talked to Jack Eiffel about it uh, when it first came around. Um, I don't agree with it. I don't think there should be a chip in the cards that either the shuffler or somebody with the right computer equipment can identify what card it is. I think mm-hmm. that's a horrible idea. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I get the need for poker to be on TV. I'm all for that. I think it's good for the game. Um, we should be doing it with the original cameras. The oh, like cameras. underneath the table, like a that sort of thing? Yes. And they should be hardwired into a room where they're, where they're not seen by anybody except production on a 15-minute delay. Mm-hmm. That way, the cards can be known by production. You can put the, the broadcast on a 30-minute delay. So you can have 15 minutes where uh, that gives enough time for any hand to expire. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody's going to know the cards, but they are going to be stored for the production team. And then they'll have an additional 15 minutes to put it on the air right. where they have the information. Uh, hardwired, nobody can hack in. 
nobody has the information on the cards. There's too much money at stake. Mm-hmm. And when there's this kind of money at stake that we're talking about in these cash games, hundreds of thousands of dollars, or God forbid this happens during the main event, because yeah. it could, you know, there, there's 10, $12 million to the winner of the main event. You're telling me that's not a, enough motivation for somebody to cheat. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the RFID chips in the cards, in my opinion, are a total no-no. And even more so, I know a lot of people don't know this, but the shufflers can read the cards. The shufflers know what what cards are, are coming out of the deck. Really? Um, I didn't know that. In, in, That's interesting. Yes. It, wow. In the casino, uh, I've been playing recently a game called Pie Gal because there's a, a jackpot that's really high. Um, they, they have a little computer on the table. Hmm. And like if there's a mistake with a hand or whatever, the dealer can hit the computer and go back and see what you had. Huh. Like if you fold your hand by accident, they know every single card in that in that deck of cards. So hmm. they know what everybody has. They know what's going to win. Um, anybody that could hack that, and there are hackers out there with that ability, it, they're just printing money. Um, hmm. It just shouldn't be done. It doesn't need to be done. You can right. do it like like I said with a with a hardwired camera. Um, Right. Sometimes low tech provides the the high tech solution. You solve all those issues. I I, I can't tell you how strongly I feel about that. I think other poker players need to speak out about this and and get rid of the RFID cards. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. Not even to mention that I've heard through the grapevine, there's so much cheating going on in home games with these RFID cards. I mean, Mm. it's constant. Um, And it's yet another reason why I don't want to play in home games. But uh People out there, if you play in home games for significant stakes, keep your eyes open. Yeah, it's happening. Yeah, fair enough. Well, thank you very much for speaking about it. So it's important not just to have uh, you know the common voice, but also you know players of notoriety, successful in speaking out and uh, offering suggestions. You know, uh, even if it's not exactly what you suggested, maybe what you're here, maybe what you're saying uh, may reach the right ears of people who can make some you know good positive changes. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, and, and I'm trying to do it in such a, such a way that respects production. Of I, course. I know it's hard to put on these TV shows, yeah. uh, but I, I think it can be done where it's both more secure and it's, and it's not inconveniencing production. Cool. Well, I guess uh, we'll see uh, how poker continues to evolve. Poker Productions, you know, Maury, Danny, all the all the guys there. I know they put their heart and soul into it. The production crew as well. Uh, that's for the WSAP main event. And, you know, so many live streams going on these days. Uh, you know, if anything, you know, people are just saying, okay, well, we, we want to do better. We want, you know, like if anything, they want to boast about being the most secure. Uh, so uh, So perhaps this gives them a good idea. Um, We're going to move to the segment of the show where you guys, our Cards Chat community, send in your questions for our guests. Uh, Just a reminder, we have a dedicated thread on the forums for this. So as we announce who our future guests will be, please be sure to send in your questions. We have two question askers today. Each of them sent in multiple ones for you, David. Um, Wants to know, well, Chica Benita will start us off. Um, Do you... (laughs) Well, you're known for this, and in the game I played with you as well, uh, you were wearing it, and in all your winner's pictures, uh, the, the infamous hat, the gunslinger hat. Do you have uh, any story, uh, any interesting or funny story tied to your hat? I do have uh, one kind of interesting story. Um, so uh, first of all, I, I started wearing the hats. I went through the airport in Australia in 2008, I believe, mm-hmm. going there for the first time for the Aussie Millions. And I picked, I, I just saw a cool looking kangaroo hat in the airport. So I picked it up and started wearing it. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then my wife kind of made it as kind of like a, 
a good present. So she started giving me new hats, you know, oh, nice. once a year or something like that. So uh, I currently, let me uh, show you the one that I have. Oh, sure. That I've been using right now. This is the uh, this is nice. the snakeskin one that I've oh, been, yeah. been wearing currently. So, <laughs> love it, good stuff. Okay, uh, next question. Um, okay, so we we've already established what tra- uh, we, what attracts you to mixed games. We know, thank you. That's Chica Benita. But the second part of the question is, which type of poker is most difficult for you, and why? Um, or we can say more challenging. Ooh, I don't know if I want to say that one. <laughs> That's fine. You can that, pass. That gives uh that gives <laughs> opponents a uh a, a game to choose in the uh in the dealer's choice. So that's probably not the greatest idea. I do know. Could but, we say uh, whether it's a flop stud or draw game? Would that be enough? Or would you rather also not say that? Um it's a flop game. Okay. There's plenty we'll of flop games I'm good at, so that's fine. That's fair. <laughs> okay. But that's actually a very good question. Uh I I just uh don't want to give that information away. Totally fair. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, is there anything Chica Benita wants to know that really annoys you while you play, both in live tournaments as well as in online events? Or, you know, one annoys you here, one annoys you there, something like that. Uh, slow. Mm. People playing slow. Uh, I have zero problem with people taking their time if they have a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, even taking a lot of time. Uh, but people taking uh, excessive amount of time to like quote and I give something away. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my worst experiences uh, was I, I went when I went my deepest run in the main event, uh, finishing 45th on day five. I had to play most no day six. I had to play most of the day with Doc Sands, mm-hmm. where everybody knows is kind of famously slow. Uh, we were playing like four hands a half hour. And wow, you know, again, playing that slow, it doesn't give you any chance to use your skill or not as much chance to use your skill. So I didn't really lose any hands on that day. And I came into the day with a chip weed, uh, but I came out of the day as one of the, you know, bottom third of stacks Mm. just from having not gotten to play any hands. And and a large part of that was my table was playing that slow because of Doc Sands. And he's a great poker player and I don't dispute him taking his time. But he would take like 20 or 30 seconds just on a routine like he had raised before the flop. Is he going to see that? He mm-hmm. knows what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I also think that that slowness is something that can keep some people out of poker that we want in poker. Poker is supposed to be fun. Right. And there's just no need to make it that slow. Um, and I guess I, I, I hate to do this because it, it shouldn't have to be a part of poker, but I think we're at the point where we need a shot clock. It, it just is what it is. In um, every tournament? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I, wow. I think, okay. <laughs> um, the $60 now, in the, in nightly? The, well, no. Okay. okay. But uh, in, in, in the mixed tournaments, you don't really see it being that necessary either. Right. But um, at the very least, um, if, if we don't do the shot clock everywhere, because I get its cost, it's dealer training, it's all that kind of stuff, uh, players be willing to call out other players. Uh-huh. So if somebody's taking like 25 seconds every time pre-flop, yeah. and, and they're, they have their 
do seven and they're taking 25 seconds to fold it, right. Call them out on it, you know, yeah. and be nice about it. But, but, um, you know, why does it affect everyone time? at the table? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Um, two more from Chica Benita in your, throughout your entire poker career, is there something specific you can point to that you're very proud of? Um, my integrity. Uh, I think, I think I've been a, a person that, that not only have I been honest myself, but I, I go out of my way to try and keep the game honest, uh, for other people, um, and try and create a, a friendly environment. Now I'm not the most talkative person at the table. Uh, sometimes I can get real wrapped up in what I'm doing. Um, but I'm very friendly. If you talk to me, I'm love to carry on a conversation. Poker is a social game. And and I'd like to think that I've made the poker world a better place uh, just from being a good person in inside of it. Beautiful. Well, that's a beautiful answer. Uh, and one more from Chica Benita. And uh, I like this question a lot, actually. I think you will, too. If you could earn as much from bowling as from poker, which would you choose? Wow. Um, when I was 20, I might have chosen bowling. Uh, now, uh, now I, I like the, I like the freedom that poker gives me. I like the mental challenge of it. Um, yeah, I, I would choose poker I, as, as, as much as I love bowling. I still love it. I, I miss, I miss doing it, but, uh, you know, poker is, is what's in my heart. It's what I really was born to do. Nice. Okay, cool. Uh, Acid Burn FX is our second question asker. Uh, well, very creative questions uh, from Acid Burn FX. David, if you had the superpower to give other people phobias, what interesting things would you make people afraid of, and why? Wow, that is that's a heck of a question. Yeah, um, I don't think I, I I don't think I would do that. Um, mm. The background that I come from, uh, it, my father was a clinical psychologist, and you know he spent his whole life trying to help people with phobias. We dealt with a lot of people. I worked with him a little bit in his office, mm -hmm. um, and we dealt with people that you know that they had phobias that crippled their life. Mm. It's just not something I would do. Okay, fair. I like it. Uh, what poker rules would you change or eliminate if you had the power to do so? Okay, this is actually I didn't quite get to get to this on the other question. It's a little off topic, but um, okay, we were talking about the poker security stuff. Um, sure, I, I want to really see regulated online poker. It may be too late for that. There, there's so much cheating and bots and dream machines and all that stuff that's in online poker now. Uh, but the only way to make online poker really playable is going to be to have a really, really good security team. And that's going to mean regulated, like on the way that DraftKings is regulated, right. um, on the way that Wall Street is regulated. Yeah. Um, that's the only way that online poker is really going to be viable. Um, yeah. uh, ask me that question again, and I'll give a little better response to it. Sure. So if you could change or eliminate any rule in poker... What you know? Which one would you choose, or which ones would you choose? This is very minor, uh, but but it's wrong, and it's a recent change. So maybe it actually could happen. Uh, they made two changes to the stud games in this past <laughs> year that the TDA did. I was wondering um, if you talk about that. Okay, 
uh, I, I spoke to Matt Savage about this um, at, w- when I first saw it happen. I didn't know until it happened at the table. Mm-hmm. First is eliminating the double bet and seven card stud. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see no point to make that change. The only thing that a, either a single or double bet does is add strategy to the game. You can still bet single. You can bet double. You can vary it. You can base it on what you think the other people will do. That's great. Um, and then secondly, in the same game and all the stud games, sometimes the dealer will expose the river card. And I never blame dealers. They're doing their best. Mistakes happen. Okay. Um, but in the past, they used to uh, like freeze the betting or they would give the option uh, for the person to be all in. Wasn't perfect, but I think a, a, I think it was fine. I don't think there was anything wrong with it. Now, what they're doing is if the, the last card gets exposed, the down card, the seventh street, they reshuffle the same way they would if a card got exposed and hold. Mm-hmm. What that has done, there's two things. The first is kind of superstition, not that important, but it is important to people, which is that it changes what their final card is. Right. And somebody that was going to win the pot that now gets a different card that loses the pot, they might they might not come back and play the next tournament. Mm-hmm. So that's that I don't want to happen, even though I know as a professional that it's equally likely to help or hurt. Right. I don't really care that much about that part, but other people do, and it affects the popularity of poker. But more importantly is that it opens up a very, very big opportunity for angle shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some players out there that would kind of get a glimpse of their card or see it and flick it up if they don't want it in order to get another card. And theoretically, the dealer's supposed to notice that and not let it happen. But we know how we know how life is. We know people aren't paying attention sometimes. And somebody that's trying to shoot an angle could very easily flip up their seventh card and get a, mm. a free shot at a replacement. Mm. Uh, and I don't that and that would affect who wins the hand and, and that that should never happen. Interesting point. Well, Matt, uh, you know, he listens to all the podcasts. We're very honored he listens to ours. And we did have him as a guest on episode number. Matt's 51. amazing. I, 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 you know, I, I, I love what Matt has done for poker. I hope oh, yeah. I hope he will use his influence to reconsider that rule because well, I, I, I don't think it's a good change. Well, one thing I know is that he and all of the board members of the TDA, they definitely, the the feedback from all the players is the most important thing to them. And they're always asking for it. And obviously he's always on Twitter and stuff. So I'm sure he will hear this. And and by the way, we've we've discussed this at our mixed game and Uh and most of the people in our mixed game are WSOP regulars. Yep. Um, We all agree. Um, this is not just my opinion. Okay. Interesting. Well, I don't know when the next TDA meeting will be. It's a one or two year, uh, every annual or biannual thing, but uh, I'm sure Matt will be uh, taking notes. That's, that's for sure. So thanks for sharing that too. Uh, so good question. Acid burn FX. We've got some important info out there. Um, maybe two or three more from them and then we'll wrap it up. What is something amazing that you did, David, but no one was around to see it? Oh, uh... I made, and this is kind of part of why I do the uh, the recaps that I do on the uh, on the tournaments. Mm-hmm. I had I made the greatest call that I've ever made in a World Series horse event with about three tables left. Um, there was a very tricky player, um, good player, um, somewhere from like kind of Eastern Europe. I don't remember the exact country. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And he bluffed me um, in an Omaha high-low hand. He raised me on the turn and bet the river. And I called him down with the very bottom pair on the board. Uh, I believe it was sixes. Um, and it was not like I was like on tilt or anything like that. I felt it. I don't know what it was. And this is what I talk about, about God given talent, mm. but I just felt he was bluffing. Mm. Um, and everything, it all, it not quite the level of the Robbie call with the Jack four, but, um, <laughs> but it was a call that made zero sense. Huh. Um, and in a, in a matter of fact, probably like re-raising was made more sense. Right. Um, but I just felt it. I just knew it. I played with the player for a while and observed him. Uh, this wasn't the first tournament we played together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the call with that, you know, in Omaha eight with all the cards and possibilities. And, and uh, I don't recall the exact board. I wish I could, but mm-hmm. uh, wow. that was the best call I've ever made in my life. And, and it was in an important stage in a tournament. That's very cool. But great, great answer to that question. Um, two more. I think we, yeah, we can do two more. What is your favorite thing that you own? Oh, wow. Um, well, I don't know if own is quite the correct words, uh, but, but uh, I have two cats that I love to death. Oh, that's um, <laughs> so uh, and I, I miss them a lot when I'm traveling also. Um, as a second answer is definitely something that I own is I just, I love to drive. I drive like a maniac and uh, it's a little older now, but I have an infinity M 45 that, uh, that, you know, drives kind of like a race car and I love it. <laughs> I just love driving like that. So that's yeah. cool. Very nice. Um, and last one for you, David uh, from acid burn FX. If you could learn any skill you wanted without trying, just instantly snap your fingers and you have this skill, which one would you pick and why? Uh, I would like to be able to play basketball on an NBA level. Oh, that's I've, cool. Okay. I've always, uh, I, I've, I'm a big Laker fan. You can see I'm wearing the hat. Yeah. Uh, I used to play poker. I used to play poker with uh, more Frank Mariani than Jerry Buss, but I got okay. to play with both of them. That's cool. Um, and, and I played basketball as a kid. I'm awful. And uh, <laughs> it, it would be nice, you know, one day to be able to, you know, to play like Steph Curry or LeBron James. So, that's super cool. I'm a fellow Laker fan, born and raised in Los Angeles. So, you know, my heart's with you. How'd you end up becoming a Laker fan, you know, from, you know, from Missouri originally and then in, in, in Georgia? That's a funny story because uh, I was a big Hawks fan yeah. uh, being from Georgia, uh, a bigger Dominique Wilkins fan because he went to the University of Georgia. He's about the same age as me. Human and highlight film. Yeah. When the Hawks traded Dominique Wilkins to the Clippers for mm. Danny Manning, of all people, um, <laughs> I, I boycotted the Hawks. I just stopped being a fan. Um, I actually stopped, kind of stopped being an NBA fan for a while. Wow. And then when I got into poker, I was, you know, I knew that uh, that Jerry Buss and Frank Mariano both played poker. And so it was just a natural. And that was at about the same time that Kobe and Shaq were beginning together. So sure. they were fun to watch. And so since then, I've just been a, a gigantic Lakers fan. I That's did awesome. repair my relationship with the Hawks a little bit in the fact <laughs> that I met, Domin- I met Dominique Wilkins. Okay. And uh, he follows me on Twitter. I'm proud of that. And uh, he's a great guy. And so, uh, you know, I still I still have a little affection in my heart for the Hawks. But uh, them trading him, that, that, that killed me. I was a 
you know, a huge fan and young and impressionable at the time. That's super cool. I mean, it's funny, little just wearing a hat comes the greatest stories. Thank That's very cool. Uh, guys, thank you so much for sending your questions in for David Bach. And again, a friendly reminder to all of you out there in the Cards Chat community, we would love to see you submit your questions for our future podcast guests in the dedicated thread on the forums. Please be sure to give us a good review on iTunes and spread the word via your social media channels if you like the show. David, before we let you go, is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Um, I think I've kind of gotten to everything. Um, I did want to address, I guess I kind of already did a little bit, but the, I'm very much in favor of uh, what's happened with uh, Jake Shinwer and Ali Nsirovich. Um that the poker community seems to be coming together to, to stop that, that level of, of cheating. Uh, I think it's really, really important. I think we're actually kind of in a little bit of a, a time where we can really help ourselves hmm. with all this exposure that's happened uh, due to the Hustler Casino Live uh, potential scandal. Um, let's take this time to try and make things more honest and secure and, and make this a, a poker a good place for the people that we want in poker um i was listening to uh, somebody on joey ingram's podcast earlier today i can't remember the name jr i think it was like a real wealthy tech guy that was playing in the mixed games and he basically said he's kind of done with the games because uh. in part because of all this stuff that he's heard about you know a lot of these players didn't know this kind of stuff was possible right um we really need those players with money that that can afford to lose it that create treat, treat poker like a recreational hobby we need those people in our game we desperately need those people in our game in order to do that we have to let them know they know they're not going to win they're, they're they're not as good as the professionals they're not even as good as as amateurs um but they deserve a fair shake yeah. and they need to know that when they sit down at the poker table they're getting a fair gamble just like if they went to the casino, they right. know they're probably going to lose, but they get a fair gamble. Exactly. Uh, and we and we need to make sure as a community that we give that to them. And I think the exposure that's currently going on gives us an opportunity to make the changes to do that. I like it. A great, great, very important message uh, and a good one on which uh, to end the show. Thank you again very much to David Bach. Thank you all for tuning in once again to another episode of the Cards Chat Podcast. I'm Robbie Straczynski. You can follow me on Twitter at Card Player Life. I wish you all a wonderful day. Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community.